Well, good morning, everybody. How is everybody doing this morning? Well, it's good to be back in the house of the Lord. It's good to be back in His Word together. Uh, I want to quickly thank everyone for the prayers and support that you've shown me and my family uh, over the, the last week. Well, this Advent season, we've been taking a closer look at the identity of the babe in the manger whose birth we celebrate on Christmas by examining each of the seven I am statements that we find that we find Jesus making about himself in John's gospel. And thus far we've looked at how Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. The only, the exclusive way, the truth, and the life. How he is the bread of life. How he is the door of the sheep. How he is the good shepherd. And last week we looked at how he is the resurrection and the life. And we've seen that these build on one another, showing that, that the nature of Christ doesn't change. We've seen the sovereignty of God at work in salvation, the exclusivity of the gospel, that there is no other way. We've seen the definition and importance of belief in Christ, and the assurance of eternal life for all those who trust in Him. Now, Christmas is not just a celebration of the birth of a special baby under special circumstances. Rather, it's the joy of this season is in remembering and reflecting on who that baby is and what that baby did. And we're going to continue with these themes as we move into our sixth I Am statement in John 15 this morning. As we continue to build on the richness of who it is that we celebrate this time of year and why that leads us or draws us to worship. But first, as you, as you turn to John 15, as we have every week, we've got to set this verse in its proper context. If we remove it from its context, we can often come to a conclusion that is not really what was intended. We can make it mean something it was never intended to mean. We can draw a faulty conclusion. If we take out a small detail uh, and look at that small detail without looking at it in its context, we can often miss the bigger picture that's going on. Uh, Jerry Clower does tell a story, and one of my kids' favorites is he tells a story about a, a deacon in his church uh, who had a son who was, uh, who was taking his driver's test. <clears throat> and he said that the boy comes to his father and says, Daddy, I'm, I'm about to turn uh, 16, about to get my driver's license. When I get my driver's license, I want, I want a new car. And his dad said, well, you've you're a pretty good, been a pretty good boy, but before I buy you a new car, you've got to do three things. He said, you to bring up your grades a little better than they are now. You've got to read your Bible more every day, and you have to get a haircut. So the boy said, boy agrees to the terms. A few months later, he turns 16, he gets his driver's license, he goes to his daddy and says, Daddy, I'm ready for my car. His daddy said, well, I have noticed you have been reading your Bible more, and you have brought up your grades, but you do not have a haircut. And the boy looked at his daddy and said, Daddy, well, I've, I've been thinking about that. He said, John the Baptist, Moses, and Jesus all had long hair. And his daddy looked at him and said, yes, and they walked everywhere they went. <laughs> you see, context is key. Context is key. So let's set up today's passage correctly. There's, there's two main points of context that we have to establish before we dig into chapter 15. And the first is all the way back in chapter 13. All, right, all the way back to chapter 13, looking at verse 30 and 31, we see, So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. 
when he had gone out, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. Now you think, okay, now what in the world does that have to do with anything? All right. That is that the scene here is the Last Supper. And in this, what, the passage I just read, we see Judas exit the scene. Or Judas exits, exits stage left, and he is going to the Jewish leaders to betray Jesus. Therefore, the rest of chapter 13, all the way through chapter 17, contain dialogue between Jesus and the remaining disciples. And that's going to be a critical piece of information to remember as we go forward. Judas has left. All right? They're sitting around the table. They finished their meal. Judas has gone uh, to, 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 to betray Jesus. He's gone to the Jewish authorities. And so the rest of this conversation takes place with the other 11 disciples who remain in the room. This is the, the physical setting in which Jesus' words in chapter 15 are spoken. Now, the second point of context to note is chapter 14. All right, it's important to remember that we cannot divorce chapter 15 from chapter 14. All right, remember, we, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. John did not write in chapters and verses. Our chapters and verses were added by scribes much later so that in a book that's well over a thousand pages long, if you're looking at it in the, in the Pew Bible, so that we can quickly find specific passages. I can reference something and you can turn there and follow along or turn there and check me <clears throat> quickly. So that's not part of inspired scripture, the actual chapter and verse. Chapters 14 through 17 is really one unified dialogue between Jesus and his disciples. We've already looked at the first half of chapter 14, so we're going to reiterate that several weeks ago. Um, and just read verse 6 for a refresher. Chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So all that, that was the first half of chapter 14. But the second half of chapter 14, Jesus again warns them that he is about to leave. His departure is imminent, and he promises to send the Holy Spirit after he is gone. Look at what he says in verses 25 through 31. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives. I am going away, and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced, because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. So, he promises to send the Holy Spirit. And again warns that he's leaving soon. And there, there would be an atmosphere of fear and anxiety in the room. Right? It's, it's tense at this point between uh, the, the disciples. And that's why Jesus tells them not to be afraid, not to let their hearts be troubled. He also gets the fact that they still don't understand what's taking place, what's about to happen, why he has to die, what he's explaining to them, what he has been explaining to them, simply by the fact that they're so dismayed at what he just said. If they understood, he said, they would have rejoiced that he was leaving. They would have rejoiced that he was about to die. But because they're sad, because they're afraid, we know that they still don't understand what's going on. They feared his departure because they didn't understand what he was doing for them. The greater 
eternal reality he was securing for them. They didn't understand his previous teaching either because he had just explained that he was the only way to the Father. And last week, Pastor Mark walked us through his teaching that he is the assurance of our resurrection and eternal life because he has authority over death. So if they had understood that, they would have had no reason to fear. They didn't get it, but Jesus acknowledges here that he's teaching them these things anyway so that when it all comes true, exactly as he says it will, they will eventually be able to put all the pieces together so that it will make sense at Pentecost, if you will, if you remember back to what we studied in the beginning of Acts. Quick side note here. Some of you may be wondering about the statement here that where he says, the Father is greater than I, uh, that that Jesus makes. This is a passage many people will point to to try to prove that Jesus was not actually the Son of God. He was not divine. But that flies in the face of the teaching of the rest of Scripture, the rest of John's Gospel, which is why context, again, is so important. In short, it's important to note he's talking here not of a power ranking within the Trinity, but in the fact that he willingly submitted to the Father and set himself lower than the Father by becoming a man that first Christmas. For a more in-depth discussion of this, ask Pastor Mark in Sunday School next week. So that's, there's your question. You can already go, you can go armed to Sunday school next week. He also notes that the ruler of this world is coming. Again, context is key because literally we know that who was coming. Judas was coming, the religious leaders, the Jewish religious leaders, and the Romans. They were the ones who were actually coming. But who does Jesus claim is behind it all? Satan. The, The other actors are his tools for carrying out his scheme. But notice his qualification. It's the same one he made a couple of weeks ago in our our previous passage. He says, he has no claim on me. No one had authority to take his life. But he was willingly laid down out of obedience to the Father. As we heard him explain in our passage two weeks ago, he has authority to lay it down and he has authority to take it up again. Even when Satan's immediate plan succeeds... God is still in complete control. And finally, he ends the chapter with a strange phrase. He says, let us go from here. Now, if you've skipped ahead to chapter 15, verse 1, you'll notice that they don't leave. In fact, they have quite a bit more to discuss. Now, just to kind of help put in perspective what's going on here, my grandfather was notorious for this. We used to laugh growing up. We'd be sitting in the car after church, and when church would, would end, when church was over, he would stand around and visit. <clears throat> my, my grandpa would talk to anybody for as long as you would listen. And when they would start to leave all right, and walk out the door, uh, their conversation would continue into the parking lot. <clears throat> and then the other party would eventually walk to their car, and the conversation would continue at the car. And that person would get in their car and they would roll the window down because the conversation was still going on. And it wasn't until the car actually started to drive away that my grandfather would actually walk away and come get in our vehicle. All right? That was when the conversation would finally end and he would be ready to go. All right? The disciples here are preparing to leave, but Jesus continues his teaching. He's not done yet. All right? And that's where we pick up with verse 1 of chapter 15. So if you've already turned there, if you haven't turned there, go ahead and turn there. John chapter 15, starting in verse 1, we're going to read verses 1 through 8. Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. 
And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Now before we begin breaking down today's text in detail, let's, let's begin, let's go to the Lord in prayer. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we thank you again so much for today. We thank you for your word uh, that you revealed to us. We thank you for these statements where you have so clearly identified who you are um, and, and given us a, a glimpse into your nature. Um, Lord, we thank you for the, the season, the fact that we uh, have this time set aside to look forward to um, the day that we celebrate your, your birth here on this earth. Uh, the fact that the, the day that you became a man so that you could do for us what we couldn't do for ourselves, that you could live the life we live and die the death that we deserved to pay the penalty for our sin. Lord, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for all that you've done. I pray that these would be your words and not mine. Lord, open our hearts and our minds to receive your word and be doers of the word and not hearers only. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, so as we did a couple weeks ago, let's begin by identifying our cast of characters. All right, we gotta, we've set the scene, now let's identify our cast of characters. Number one, if we're looking at John chapter 15, verse 1, he says, I am the true vine, my Father is the vine dresser. Our Jesus is the true vine. Jesus is the vine, the Father is the vine dresser. Right, so if you're following, all, following along on your note sheet, Jesus is the true vine, the Father is the vine dresser. And just to go ahead and complete our cast of characters, we're going to skip ahead a little bit. People are the branches, the, we are the branches, and the fruit that we're going to talk about in a minute is evidence of faith. The evidence of faith. So those are, when we refer to these things going forward, that's our, those are our characters. That's who we're talking about. Now the phrase in verse 1 that Jesus is, it doesn't say Jesus is the vine. He doesn't say I am the vine. He says I am the true vine. I am the true vine. And that phrase, including that word true, is important. It's not it's not just thrown in there, it's put there for a very specific reason. He was not saying that there were many people running around claiming to be vines, but Jesus was the only true vine. All right? uh, that, that's not what he was talking about. The disciples would have picked up on the symbolism here, because throughout the Old Testament, the nation of Israel is often and consistently referred to as a vine or a vineyard with God as the vine dresser. So they would have picked up on this, but just to go back and get us in that frame of mind, if you'll turn with me to Isaiah chapter 5, Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 7, the prophet Isaiah, this is God speaking here, says, Let me sing for my beloved my, my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. 
And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more has there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and, and, I, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up in it. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. He looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. So here we see Israel is often in the context of a pronouncement of judgment. We see Israel identified as a vine or a vineyard. Uh, look at Psalm 80. Psalm 80, verses 8 and 9. It says, You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. Again, he's talking about the nation of Israel. In Hosea chapter 10, verse 1, Israel is, is a luxuriant vine that yields its fruit. The more his fruit increased, the more altars he built. And as his country improved, he improved his pillars. Again in Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 21, Yet I planted you a choice vine, holy of pure seed. How then have you turned degenerate and become a wild vine? And there are plenty of other examples. We could, just, we could go on and on and on throughout the Old Testament where the authors refer to Israel as a vine. Israel is described as God's vine that was supposed to yield good fruit. But as you see in these, specifically in Isaiah and Jeremiah, the conclusion was that Israel often yielded bad fruit. All right, referred to here as wild grapes. Vines, if you've ever had any experience with vines, vines tend to just go everywhere. All right? And they often contain a lot of worthless growth. So the vine dresser guides the vine where it wants to climb, where it wants to go, where it wants to run. All right? It guides the vine and prunes the vine so that it is fruitful and it grows in the right direction. Israel, as God's vine, rebelled against the work of the vine dresser. Jesus, however is the true vine. He is the one who will do what Israel could not. He is the one who will point the way to the Father, who will live the life that no human could live, a life without any wild grapes, a life of perfect obedience to the vine dresser. And where Israel failed as the vine, Jesus would succeed. He is the true vine. And we will see the implications of this shortly. So let's, let's go on to two, chapter 15 of John, verse 2. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. <clears throat> Each week, we have seen this, this same dichotomy, this division of people into two groups, and only two groups, those who believe and those who do not, those who have saving faith and those who do not, those who will spend eternity with God's grace and mercy after death, and those who will spend eternity under God's wrath in hell after death. Those are the only two groups of people. All right? At the end of the day, everybody is going to be divided into one of those two places, one of those two groups. It's going to be black or white. All right? There will be no in-between. And we see the same thing in today's text. There are two types of branches, those that bear fruit and those that do not. And what we see in that is that your fruit betrays your true identity. Now, the youth are going to be, they're, they're very familiar. They could probably recite my analogy of the fruit. Um, 
just about any one of them, because they've heard it a thousand times. Uh, But I could buy and plant what a salesman tells me is an apple tree. I could plant it in my yard. I can believe that it's an apple tree. I can tell everyone it's an apple tree. I can genuinely desire for it to produce apples. And I can get defensive or angry whenever someone tells me otherwise. But come spring, if this tree is covered in peaches, what is it? It's a peach tree. That's right. Regardless of what I say, regardless of what I do, regardless of what I want, a tree's fruit betrays the type of tree it really is at its core. And likewise, the fruit or the evidence of faith in your life betrays your true identity at heart, which group you belong to. Fruit or lack thereof informs us which of these two groups we're in. The branches that do not bear fruit are cut away as a gardener would remove dead limbs from, from a plant. Genuine faith, however, produces fruit. In James chapter 2, verses 14 through 19, James says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works, by my fruit, if you will. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe that and shudder. If your life reveals no fruit, if your life reveals no evidence of faith, then you are a dead branch and will be cut off. Now, This is not a loss of salvation. This is rather proof that you never possessed it to begin with. On the flip side, bearing fruit is evidence of life in Christ. But fruit comes pruning. Faith doesn't mean that everything is easy from then on out. Rather, God prunes the living branches so that they will grow where He wants them to and produce even more fruit. So when difficult or painful things happen in life and we wonder, why am I going through this? Why do I have to do this? Here's your answer. The gardener is pruning the vine. He's pruning the branches. We may not see his objective, but God is in control. And what is happening to you, regardless of the circumstances, is part of his grand purpose for his glory. Now, continuing on in verses 3 and 4, look at what... John says, Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Here in verse 3 we see that the teaching of Christ has already begun to take root in the lives of the disciples who remained. Remember, Judas is not here at this point. D.A. Carson in his commentary on this passage explains it this way. Sometimes you just some people just have a way with words and so I'm going to borrow his quote here, but he says, The cleansing power of the word Jesus has spoken to his disciples, then, is equivalent to the life of the vine pulsating through the branches. That's what verse 3 means. Now, but pay close attention to his next words. He says, Abide in me, and I in you. What does that mean? Well, what we see is that both the vine and the branch have a role to play. The vine and the branch have a, role to pro- have a role to play. A branch cannot bear fruit apart from the vine. 
Likewise, you and I cannot bear the fruit of faith apart from the work of Christ. We saw this a couple of weeks ago when we looked at where Jesus said, no one comes to the Father except through me. No one comes to the Father unless the Father draws them. Again, it's the same idea. It's the same theme. It's the same theme, just a little bit different spin on it here, talking about the vine. All right? It's a different metaphor, but he's talking about the same theme. The vine and the branch have a role to play. The vine is essential to the life of the branch. The two, are not, the two cannot be separated and the branch still live. Look at verse 5 of John 15. Look at verse 5. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. Look at there. For apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. Not a little bit. Nothing. We cannot follow God apart from Christ. We cannot please God apart from Christ. Apart from the vine, we cannot produce fruit. No one can come to the Father except through Jesus because He is the only way, the only truth, and the only life. Again, we see how these things are interconnected because the nature of Christ doesn't change. Ephesians 2.8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing, it's the gift of God. Not your own doing, it is a gift from God. The vine is required. Look at John 3, 3. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Good luck doing that on your own. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Faith and the fruit of faith is first and foremost a work of God. Nothing that we do Nothing a branch can do apart from the vine can produce anything of spiritual or eternal value. Nothing a branch can do apart from the vine has any spiritual or eternal value. A branch cannot bear fruit if it is disconnected from the vine. But the branch is not passive in all this. It's easy for us to look at this and passages like this and and see the sovereignty of God. Sorry, I'm losing my voice there. It's easy for us to see the sovereignty of God in all this and stop there. But Jesus doesn't stop there. Both the vine and the branch have a role to play. He is not a passive participant in this. Notice the command here to abide in Him. That's the role of the branch. That's the role of a disciple. Look at Philippians. We see a similar theme here coming from Paul to the church at Philippi. He says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Here again, we see God's sovereignty and man's responsibility set side by side. You work out your salvation because God is working in you. The two go hand in hand. Colossians 1.23, we see the same idea. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. If you continue in the faith, if you stand firm, if you are steadfast, if you do not shift from the hope of the gospel. For example, in everyone's favorite book, in Hebrews chapter 3, For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. The responsibility of the branch is to cling to the vine. The vine provides the life, but the branch clings to the vine, realizing that there is no life apart from it. All our hope, 
our purpose, our faith, our salvation comes from Christ, so we cling to Him no matter what. Now, again, remember our context. There was much fear in this room as Jesus was telling His disciples that He was about to die. He was about to be arrested later that evening. Here is a word of encouragement to them. Hold fast to the vine. Abide in me. Remain in me. Fight the fight. Keep the faith. Hold fast to the end. Because it is the branch that has life at the end that is truly connected to the vine. But not all branches have life. Not all branches bear fruit. Not claim the name of Jesus, actually submit to him, repent of their sin, walk in obedience to his word, and then bear fruit. Look at verse 6. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. Branches may claim the vine. They may look connected. But eventually, their lack of faith will reveal the truth. Again, remember the context. All right, Who just left? Judas. Judas had just left. Judas is a case in point. He left everything to follow Jesus. We forget this about Judas. Judas dropped everything and followed Jesus. Judas answered the same call from the same man that the other 11 disciples did. He walked with Jesus. He ministered with Jesus. He lived with Jesus. He heard the same teaching the others did. He saw the same miracles the others did. He looked connected, but it was only super. How do we know? Because his branch withered. His branch withered. It wasn't receiving life from the vine. It wasn't really connected. He was not the only one. We forget this often too. He was not the only one to sin against Jesus. In this, just even in this, the, even in this three or four day period, Peter himself denied that he had any relationship to Jesus three times. And all the other disciples did what when the Romans showed up? They ran away. They all deserted him. In a way, they all betrayed him. They all turned their back on Jesus when, time, when the times got tough. But the eleven whom he is speaking to now would go on to lead the church in Acts. They would eventually each... Each of these 11 men who was left, all right, they abided in the vine to the end because they gave their life for Jesus. Each and every one of them was killed for their faith. Each and every one of them had life to the end. They weren't perfect. They made mistakes, all right, but they stood steadfast to the end, severed to the end. Their branches were pruned. But look in Matthew chapter 27. Look at how Judas responded. Look at how Judas responds in Matthew 27, verses, starting in verse 3. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the thirty pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, What is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and he went and hanged himself. He went and hanged himself. Different response? His branch withered because it was never truly connected to the vine. Withered branches reveal lack of belief. His branch withered because it was not truly connected to the vine. His response reveals that though he claimed Christ at one point, he never really possessed saving faith to begin with. He was never one of Christ's to begin with. He was 
play acting. He was playing the part, but he had never truly submitted to the lordship of Christ. In the end, he did not cling to the vine. His life bore no fruit. He saw, but never believed. He saw, but never believed. Too often we skip through life nonchalantly, paying little to no attention to the, the fruit or lack of fruit in our lives. For many, we walk an aisle and we repeat after a pastor and we get dunked in the water and live our lives trying to do good when we can and assuming that we're connected to the vine because we say we are without ever actually stopping to look for fruit. And too often we miss the seriousness of what Jesus is talking about here. A lot of times we we may get the concept, but we don't realize the weight of what he's saying. He uses similar imagery elsewhere. So look at uh, if you flip to Matthew chapter 13, for example, look, starting in verse 4, Jesus, he, he put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field, but while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servant said, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first, bind them in bundles to be burned. Then go gather the wheat into my barn. See the the similar imagery here? Skip down a couple, a few more verses in the same chapter, verses 49 through 50. So it will be at the end of the age, the angels will come and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, I was faced with this reality head on this past week. From most of you know my grandfather and I were extremely close throughout my entire life. Uh, And I was blessed to be able to preach his funeral earlier this week. Now, delivering that sermon was the hardest thing I've ever done in my entire life. Delivering that sermon was. But it was the easiest sermon I've ever written. Because you didn't have to look hard at his life to see the fruit of his faith. It was easy to make the case for his salvation and his realized eternal inheritance as we speak and to preach a message of, of joy and comfort and knowing that for those of us who are also connected to the vine, the fruit in my life means I will see him again one day in glory. But what if it was you or I laying there? What if it was a friend or a neighbor or a relative? What reality would the fruit of your life reveal or the fruit of their life reveal? What message would be preached? if the message was based solely on the fruit in your life. You see, the stakes couldn't be higher. The dead branches, like the weeds and the evil ones, will be gathered and burned. Those who believe in Jesus, those who abide in the vine to the end, will bear much fruit and live forever with Him in glory. Two groups. Which one are you in? And finally, look at verses 7 and 8 of John, chapter 15. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. 
By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Here we see again that fruit is evidence of faith. Fruit is evidence of faith. Verse 7 here hearkens back to Psalm 37. Psalm 37 verse 4 says, Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. Delight yourself in the Lord, He will give you the desire of your heart. Now the idea here is not that you can get whatever you want by claiming faith in Christ like Jesus is a genie and you have unlimited wishes. That's, that's, That's not the picture. In fact, how arrogant of us to think that we can manipulate the power of God in any way. Rather, He is reminding His disciples that abiding in Him, that believing in Him results in a fundamental heart change. He will change your wishes. He will change the desires of your heart to conform to His. It's not come to Jesus to get what you want, but rather come to Jesus to have your wants changed. He's talking to His disciples as He's getting ready to go to the cross. He knows they're scared and they don't understand, and He reminds them, as we need to be reminded, that our works do not save us, but the fruit of faith in our lives provides assurance of what God has already done for us. Bearing fruit brings glory to God and separates the disciples from the pretenders. It's the weeds from the wheat. Separates the evil from the righteous. Those who believe and those who do not. As the praise team comes and prepares to lead us in in worship, in worshiping the one who is the true vine, let's conclude as we have every week so far in this series this is our advent season so what is our advent application what does this have to do with christmas what does this have to do with looking forward to or anticipating the birth of christ our advent application this morning is as the true vine he did what we could not do and that is to provide redemption he did what we could not do provide redemption we can do nothing apart, of, apart from the vine. We can do nothing of eternal value apart from Him. In many ways, as we have seen week after week, our celebration of Christmas is as, mu- is as much a celebration of the nation that He secured as it is of His actual birth. Let's pray and then let's worship the true vine this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank You again for today. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for revealing yourself to us through these I am statements. We thank you for this season, for the opportunity that we have to not only remember the circumstances by which you chose to humble yourself and come into the world, but why you did it. Lord, that you did it so that you could provide salvation for a people who didn't deserve it, who could never earn it. Lord, you loved us Simply because. Because you chose to. Lord, help us to never forget that. Help us to not focus just on a baby being born in a manger and the story. and All, that, all those things are good and great, but Lord, help us to remember the, who this baby was. Help us to remember why it was important that you came and were born that day. Who it was that was lying in that manger and what that meant for us. What that means today. And Lord, I pray that as we... As we remember and as we talk and as we celebrate, Lord, that that would draw us to worship you for who you are today. Because you never change. Lord, we love you and we praise you. And it's in Christ's name. Amen.